if we know that that's how people make decisions, what problems it solves, why do we need it, what's the likely outcome or result, then what the heck are we doing by leading with, here's what we do as a company and here's how our widget works. Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76. So back in May, I wrote an article titled Summer Reading, 12 Lessons from 12 Books for 12 Weeks. And in this article, I pulled standout quotes from 12 of my all-time favorite business books. And today, I'm pretty darn excited because my guest is the author of one of those 12 books. So let me take a moment to introduce best-selling author and B2B growth expert, Ian Altman. Ian started, sold, and grew his prior companies from zero to over $1 billion in value. He has since spent years researching how executives make decisions. His modern approach has been instrumental in helping many businesses turn marginal growth into explosive growth and to help them thrive where their competitors struggle to merely survive. Ian is a co-author of the bestseller, Same Side Selling, now in its second edition. You can read hundreds of his articles on Forbes and Inc., Ian is a founder of Same Side Selling Academy, rated one of the top five sales development programs globally. Ian, welcome to the show. Joe, thanks for having me on. And I'm flattered that, see, originally you said, hey, I wrote this thing about the top 12 books on business. And I was expecting you to say, and none of those people were available. So I have Ian here <laughs> instead. <laughs> no, you, you made the list and you were, yeah, it's, I, I can't remember exactly how I stumbled across same side selling. I want to say I heard maybe you on a, a guest as a guest on a podcast or something years, maybe five years ago or so, but the, the book was intriguing. I picked it up and immediately be, it became one of my favorites for a number of reasons, which I, I want to get into today. But yeah, and it's you know among a few things I'd love to talk to you about. But first, could you give our listeners a little bit of background on you? Just you know, build on the intro. Tell us how, how you wound up where you are today. Well, the the big thing. I mean, you, you talked about my work. I started my first company in 1993. We became a fast 50 company by 1998. So one of the 50 fastest growing companies in the Washington D.C. region. We were also the only company on the list who was not a government defense contractor. And which was funny because once we hit the list, we'd get all these inbound prospecting calls from people talking about what we needed for government contracting. We're like, we're not a government contractor. No, no, you're number 21 on the list. Yeah, we're we're not <laughs> we're not in that space. And we built a software company then starting in 98, in addition to the core consulting business that we had. In 2005, I got approached by some investment bankers out of New York. We sold the company for cash and stock, and I served as managing director of the parent company. We grew the value of the business from $100 million to actually about $2 billion in a little over three years. And I was flying 200,000 miles a year. I wasn't spending time with my wife or my kids. And I just thought after a while, why am I still doing this? I didn't have a good answer, so I stopped. 
And people said, what are you going to do now? And my first thought was, well, I'll just do the same sort of thing. I'll just build a new company like that again. And one of my friends said, you know, a bunch of us were talking and anytime our businesses were struggling to grow, you seem more excited about helping us fix something in our business than you were about your own business. Why don't you do that? And I said, do what? They said, well, help businesses grow. And I said, well, there's a business for that. And they said, well, you didn't necessarily need that, but most of us, yeah, we, we go to experts in that type of space. And so I started speaking in, what was this, probably 2008, 2009, something like that. Started speaking at events and I've been doing it ever since. And so speaking and coaching and guiding people on how they grow their businesses with integrity, it's frustrating for me to see the frustration that people have with sales and marketing because it doesn't have to be that miserable experience. Sure. Absolutely. And so what came first, the organization, same side selling and your training program or the book? So the, the book, the book, we released the first version, I think it was in 2014 or 2015. And so definitely the, the speaking and everything came first. In fact, the first book I wrote was called Upside Down Selling. That is a really short book that people can read that gives them the gist of it's in essence, how do you take non-sales people and teach them some of the core principles of same-side selling before same-side selling existed? And, and then I met Jack Quarles, who spent two decades in purchasing a procurement. And Jack actually attended a workshop I was delivering on sales. It was the upside-down selling workshop. And I thought, wow, this is cool. Jack's coming to kind of see what's going on and see if he can learn something. And the reality is, that Jack had found that some of the vendors who they were willingly paying much higher fees to than other vendors, the common thread was they would say, oh yeah, I went through this program with this guy, Ian Altman, and Jack wanted to understand what they were being taught. And when he came to the program, he said, well, this is all integrity-based. In fact, this makes perfect sense. This isn't dishonest. This is totally honest. And then we got to know each other and said, there are no books written from the perspective of the buyer and the seller, we should do this. And, you know, fortunately it's resonated with quite a few people and, you know, enough to the point that, you know, we released a second edition about a year ago and it's been a very successful road. And I just think that the title resonates with people. It's like, Oh, that makes sense. Like you can understand conceptually, ah, I getting on the same side, not on opposing sides. Yeah. And I think that's what's so unique about it, having the perspective from procurement or the buyer side and then the sales side, because there's, you know, I see it all the time with in my world, in the world of my customers where you're, you know, it's, it's like, it's this battle in the sale of buyer versus seller. And there's this race to the bottom on price and everything. Yeah. It's one versus the other. And, and the whole concept of your book, which I think you chose the perfect name for it is let's work together to figure out if there's a fit, let's come to a common solution that makes sense for everybody. So I, I just thought it was, it was so unique in that sense. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating that almost every book that I've ever seen on sales either uses a battle metaphor or a game metaphor. Yeah. And if we take the, take the second one first, in a game, there's a winner and a loser. And in a battle, the loser actually dies. And then we wonder why there's this adversarial tension instead of we use the model or the metaphor of a puzzle that says, look, if you're putting a puzzle together, you each have to be able to see each other's pieces or you'll never be able to put the puzzle together. And if you're not trying to put the same puzzle together, then there's just not a good fit. 
And so it changes the dynamic where it's less about how do I convince this person that they need to buy from me? They just don't know it yet. Instead, it changes it to, look, for the right organizations, we're a great fit. We're not, the, we're not a great fit for everybody. So I don't yet know if I can help you. But if you're facing these sorts of problems, I'm happy to learn more to see if I can help. It makes it so that you're instantly on the same side. Yeah, I love that. You know, one of the biggest issues that I see with sales in the manufacturing sector where the listeners of this show live and our customers at Gorilla is, you know, they, everybody defaults to talking about themselves. It's we do this and we sell that and our people are the best and our competitors are phonies and, you know, it's, it's all about us, right? And what I love about what you call the same side pitch is that you kind of flip the positioning statement or the, the sales message on its head and you lead with the customer's issue. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. Well, for starters, that example that you give of people always talking about themselves and here's what we do and here's the way we approach the world and everyone else is evil is when companies suffer from what I like to call axis displacement disorder. And that's where the person doing the selling believes that somehow the axis of the earth has shifted and now the world revolves around them. And it doesn't. In fact, if anything, the world revolves around our client. So one of the things in researching how executives make and approve decisions, one of the things that we did is we, ran, we run people through an exercise. And I've done this exercise with over 10,000 executives around the world from companies ranging from, you know, relatively small startups under a million dollars in revenue to multi-billion dollar multinationals virtually everywhere on the planet except for the continent of Africa. And we haven't gone anywhere in the Antarctic. So outside of that, I got you covered. Mm -hmm. And we ask people, well, let's say someone on your team comes to you and wants to spend money on this thing and call it a Gazertenblatt. It doesn't matter what it's called. And they say, we're going to spend $20,000. It takes 45 days for the vendor to implement it, requires no resources whatsoever on our part, and they give us a 10-year guarantee. The challenge I give people is what are the five questions you would have to have answered to be comfortable making an informed decision to either approve or deny that request? And I let people work in teams to come up with their list of five, then they narrow it down to their top three. And they ask the same three questions everywhere, no matter the size of the company, no matter where they are geographically. And the three questions come down to this. The first one is, what problem does this solve? So think about it, you're gonna spend money. Well, in essence, what problem does this solve? which is immediately followed by the second question of why do we need it, which is what's the, what happens if we don't solve that issue? Meaning what's the problem? And then what's the consequence of not solving that problem? And then the third question is what's the likely result or outcome if we make this investment? Well, so, and by the way, the distant fourth in all this is what are the alternatives? And the reason mm -hmm. why it's a distant fourth is that if you answer those first three questions, well, the fourth one becomes implied. So the vendor who you're in total sync with about what problem they're trying to solve for you and why you need their help, who happens to also be the same vendor who delivers the best, most likely outcome for you, that's your vendor, that's the one you pick. Mm -hmm. So if we know that that's how people make decisions, what problems it solve, why do we need it, what's the likely outcome or result, then what the heck are we doing by leading with, here's what we do as a company and here's how our widget works. And it's, it, it's not aligned with how people make decisions. So instead, what do we lead with? Well, our clients come to us when they're facing these types of problems that have these types of consequences. For the right organizations, we deliver this specific type of outcome. And now I need to disarm the notion that I'm just there to sell something. So I say, but the way we approach that isn't the right fit for everybody. 
I don't yet yeah. know whether or not we can help you. But if those are issues you're facing, I'm happy to learn more to see whether or not we might be able to help. And that structure is what we call the same side pitch. It's in chapter four of the book. If you search, if you Google same side pitch, you can probably find excerpts of this for free. If you don't want to get the book, it doesn't matter. It's not about, it's just more, if people have the book, they know where to, where to find it in the book. So the idea is that we, the same side pitch follows this construct of entice, disarm, and discover. So first we entice by sharing problems that we solve with dramatic or extraordinary results. We then disarm the notion that we're just there to sell something. And then we trigger a discovery phase to learn more about their situation to see whether or not we might be able to help. So yeah, it's a great model, a great infrastructure for doing it. And I can see, I love the the puzzle piece analogy because if if you can just blatantly say, these are the types of companies that we're good at helping. You know, these are the problems that those types of companies typically experience. This is how we can help solve those problems. But not everybody's the right fit for us. All of a sudden, you you start to weed out companies that aren't the right fit. I imagine it makes you more efficient in your sales process because now you're spending time with companies that actually could be the right customers, right? Sure. Well, and, and the idea is this, is that what people used to, what, what they used to be taught and, and, and by the way, we'll, we're, going to, we're going to use G76 as an example. So in a second, I'm going to ask you, well, what are the problems that your clients would face? So you have a second to think about it. All right. But, <laughs> but, but what, what, what I want you to think about is this, is that if you're, if you're leading with what people have often been taught in the past is, well, you ask an open-ended question, like what keeps you up at night? Mm-hmm. And you might ask somebody what keeps you up at night and they say, oh, my dog licks himself. All right, well, well, what do you have for that? Do you have a solution? No. And so then you're fishing going, oh, well, what else? Well, I got concerns about X, Y, and Z. Yeah, we don't do that either. And now you're fishing for an opportunity as opposed to, if you think about it, my guess is some of your best clients were facing a problem that they weren't even aware of until you helped them realize that it was an issue. Mm -hmm. And so if you say to them, what's your biggest problem? They might not even realize it. You know, it's like one of the questions that we'll ask people is, well, so zero to 10, how well do your salespeople perform? And no one ever gives a 10. It's usually like a five. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how much of that do you attribute to a, how much of that do you attribute to a hiring problem? And how much of it do you attribute to a skills problem? And they go, it's probably like 80% skills. Okay. So what are you doing to invest in those skills? And it's like, you know, the head explodes yeah. and goes, oh, right? But, but if you asked them, hey, what's your biggest challenge? They would never say it's the selling skill side. Yeah. But oftentimes it is. So going back to the same side pitch, if, if you're okay with it. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, use, we'll use your business as an example. Fire like away. A, like a twofer. <laughs> so, so what's the biggest challenge that you solve for your clients? So I would say the biggest challenge is that they're not getting in front of enough of the right people from the right companies. And why is that a problem? Because if they're not, if they're not doing that, then they're relying on their existing customer base or referrals and are often stuck serving customers who are not profitable and they wind up kind of on this hamster wheel. Yep. Okay. So, so your, your same side pitch might be, well, manufacturers come to us when their, their message of the amazing products and services they have aren't getting in front of the right clients. And that means that it, either their inferior competitors are winning that business or 
at a minimum, the company is forced to just keep trying to harvest the existing clients who you, can, you eventually run out of additional things you can sell your existing clients. For the right organizations, they tell us that we deliver marketing solutions that attract those clients, fill the top of their funnel, and give them a disproportionate share of mind from those ideal customers. But the way we approach that, it's not the right fit for every company. So I don't yet know if I can help your manufacturing company. But if that's something you're facing, I'm happy to learn more to see if we might be able to help. And so that's what it sounds like is first understanding what are those problems that we solve and then what the consequence is. Now, I just kind of winged it so it may not be perfect, but it might not suck. Well, you know what? I'm glad we're recording this because now I can just uh, transcribe it and copy and paste right into our website, right? No, that's, that's right on the money. I mean, it's exactly the converse. I can understand the power of having that conversation. And, and when you've, especially when, you, when you're in a niche and you have a very specific type of customer and you know that customer really well, well, you've seen all these patterns over time, right? And so it's, it, while you can't make assumptions about what your prospects need, you've seen these problems before and, and you're able to speak to them, so. Absolutely, in, in my business, it comes down to, it's the earning attention side. It's people feeling that they're commoditized. Yep. So, wow, we've got something that's head and shoulders above the competition, but our clients see us as a commodity, just like everybody else. Or there's this whole shift of, how do we shift the conversation from price to value? Because everyone wants to beat us up. Those are the types of things that I hear time and time again. So that's when people say, what do you do? Well, my clients are usually facing one of these problems. Boom, boom, boom. And yeah. if that doesn't resonate it's probably not the right fit today. It doesn't mean it'll never be, but they're probably not the right client today. There's a, a line from your book that I have, I've quoted. I've had a picture of your book up there. I've had the quote highlighted in, in a number, number of times I've been in front of our own clients and hopefully it's sold you some books along the way without you realizing it. But uh, the, the line that I really love, because it, it just speaks so well to a lot of things that we preach at Gorilla and try to teach our clients is this. It says, you, know, you said, the goal of being an educator is not to convince, but to include a prospect in your perspective or knowledge base so that you build a common mutual understanding. Yep. And I just love that quote so much because it's everybody in my world, in this manufacturing world, they just default, like, we, like I said earlier, to talking about themselves. And that's all you see in their marketing. It's brochure marketing, it's websites filled with product pages, which you need that stuff. I'm not saying you don't need it, but what we emphasize so much is that you have to take these elements of a consultative sale and you got to bring them down into your marketing process as well, because the first touch point that a lot of your future customers will have with you is, is the content you publish and, and the things you say. And so I was just kind of curious to hear, you know, your take on that particular quote and this idea of being an educator. Well, my, I always say that the best quotes in the book, Jack probably wrote, but the, <laughs> the, 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 the idea behind the idea behind this is that when your client or prospect doesn't decide to do business with you, they decide not to spend money with you, one of two things has happened. Either they don't believe that the problem that you're talking about solving for them is that big of a deal, at least not compared to other things on their plate, or they don't believe in the result or outcome that you're, that you're allegedly going to deliver, or both. And so when companies talk about here are features and here are capabilities and all this whiz-bang stuff, what's the client wondering? What problems to solve? Why do I need it? What's the likely outcome or result? So the idea is that if you believe 
in the issue, the impact of the results, and the client doesn't, it doesn't count. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if they believe in it, but you don't, it doesn't count. So it's got to be a mutual understanding. If you both are on the same page about what problem you're trying to solve, if you're both on the same page about what happens if they don't solve it, and you both have consistent expectations about what the results should be, then there's a level of trust. If you think about it, if you're buying from somebody and you haven't had a meaningful conversation about what the results need to look like, what's going through the customer's mind? The client is thinking, yeah, but do they really understand what we're trying to accomplish? But if you ask the questions up front about what does success look like and how are we going to measure it, then it's just the client saying, yeah, I think they're actually going to follow through or not. But at least everyone's on the same page about what it is you're trying to accomplish. You know, one of, the, one of the things that I often share, especially with people on the manufacturing side is, so let's say you had two different vendors. One vendor is asking you about who needs to be involved in actually making a purchase. The other vendor says, what could put the results at risk? And what are we going to measure together to make sure that we get the right results for you? Well, which vendor would you rather deal with? The person who's focused on the sale or the vendor who's focused on the results? right? Obviously the results side. Right. And, and then I'll say, well, so would you be willing to pay more for the vendor who's focused on results? And people will almost universally say, oh yeah, I'd pay more for that. Okay. How much more? And the most common answer is somewhere between 10 and 20% more. And then I asked the following question, which is, so how much less would you have to pay for it to be a good deal, but you don't get the results that you need? Hmm. The answer is, it doesn't matter. Like if I don't get the results I need, it was a waste of time and resources, let alone the money. So when companies can learn how to pivot to focus on results, instead of focusing on just getting the sale, that's when everything changes. That's when clients routinely pay more for your services than for other people's. And there's a whole thing that we don't have time to discuss today that talks about differentiation and how do you stand out over the competition? Sure. Yeah. I love that. Well, Ian, we are recording this in August of 2020. The world is still upside down in a lot of ways, and it looks like it may be for a while. One of the biggest struggles that I'm seeing among B2B manufacturers is they're not sure what to do with this big gap that's being left by the absence of trade shows. And and not only trade shows, but just being able to get on a plane and fly across the country to see a customer or a prospect so many of these companies are reliant on that in-person interaction. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious from you know, your perspective, what you're seeing with the companies you consult and, and what you think you know, these organizations can be doing in the meantime to fill that void. It's, it's interesting. In the, in the same site selling academy, we do a monthly coaches corner call. And one of the most prevalent topics of late has been, so what do we do when we can't have in-person meetings, when we can't rely on networking, when we used to get 80% of our leads to these trade shows that now don't exist, mm-hmm. what do we do? And so what we need to do is immediately pivot to think like our customers. Now, the smart companies already were thinking like their customers, but the you know there's still time to catch up, which is, okay, what are the questions that our clients would ask? My, my friend Marcus Sheridan in his book, They Ask You Answer, you know, Marcus talks, you're in the marketing world, you undoubtedly know Marcus as well. Oh, I love, love, they ask you answer, love and, it. Um, yeah. And so the whole idea is that how do you create content that is meaningful 
for your client or prospect. And it comes down to Marcus talks about his big five of content marketing, five key topics that move the needle. And one of them is talk about price. One of them is talk about best of and comparisons, rankings and reviews, I think it is. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is to make it so that you're speaking to the problems you solve, not your features and capabilities. So if, for example, you did, you did a case study that talked about how you solve this problem for another organization, it used to be when people did case studies, they would write a little bit about what the client was doing. Then they would write, you know, three or 400 pages about themselves and how smart they are as a manufacturer. And then in the end, it would say, and contact us for more information. Mm -hmm. And instead, what I suggest is you condense things and you say, so here's a manufacturing company that, or, you know, whether it's a manufacturer or whether it's a, you know, whoever their end client is, mm -hmm. here's this organization, they were having this problem and here's why that problem was so important. Notice, what am I starting with? What problem were they trying to solve and why do they need to do it? Then I give you an entire sentence, not a compound sentence, but a sentence that says they came to us for help. And then you talk about the result and outcome they ended up with, which barely mentions your product or service. Mm -hmm. So it says, well, they came to us and they used the Gazertenblatt A2020. Today, they're able to do this now. They've captured more market share. They've shortened their time to market. They've reduced errors. They've you know, improved efficiency. They've, their dogs and cats now peacefully get along together, whatever it is. And that's all great. So somebody reads that. And they say, wow, that's really great. It could be a video, it could be, could be text, doesn't matter. After they've consumed that content, if they, they're only going to look at that if they're having that same problem. Mm -hmm. So now we're already, we're already narrowing down our filter to the right people. And then what happens is they say, wow, yeah, I didn't think about the consequence of that. Yeah, I bet you we have the same consequence. And wow, I'd sure like to have that same outcome. Only the vendor didn't describe the exact solution. Mm-hmm. So if you're that customer, what do you do? You either pick up the phone or you email the company and say, how did you solve that? And then it's about training the rep who answers that call to not say, oh, here's how we solved it, but instead say, what was it about that case study that piqued your interest? Mm -hmm. And immediately talk about what's important to them as a customer, not talking about your stuff. Perfect. Love it. So case studies, you know, but focused on the problem and the outcome. So, so case it's, it's basically, it's just taking all of your marketing mindset and shifting it to a focus on what problems do we solve? What's the information that people are wondering about? And guess what? If it's, if there's, if there's a certain problem, you might say, here are three ways to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. And guess what? You might start by saying, look, oftentimes people come to us to solve this problem. And that's something that we do. Mm -hmm. But in the event that you can't afford to do it the, the way that we do it, here are two or three alternatives that could work for you. Because mm -hmm. the person who's going to go through all the headaches to do it the hard way, they're going to do that anyhow. Sure, sure. Right? But other people are going to look and say, well, those three ways look like a lot of work. We're not doing that. Let's just call these guys. Mm -hmm. and, and then you're narrowing your field. So if, if you just put out a whole bunch of marketing hype that says, here's how cool we are, no one's going to care. Right. If instead you say, okay, how do we attract the right interest by speaking to the problems that these people are facing day in and day out, then you're onto something. We, we created in the, in the same side selling Academy, I created a course called growth in crisis that we give people 
you know, people can access for free. Just go to the website and, you know, samesidesellingacademy.com and you can click and, and get that course for free. Yeah. One of the first things I talk about is that in this type of crisis environment, your goal, first and foremost, is to be helpful. And so I thought it'd be kind of cynical if I then charge for the course. So <laughs> sure, um, right. we just we just made it available for free. But it's the whole idea of how can you help other people and talk about the problems that they're facing and how to solve them. And the right people will come back and do business with you. It's okay. Yeah, makes sense. But and so with you know with with in person events, trade shows out the door. So creating content that's actually helpful. How do you get it out there from your perspective? Are you an inbound guy, an outbound guy? Do you like both? Do you it's, use it's a little media? bit of both. So to, to, yeah. if you already have a good list, then you're sharing information and you're constantly seeking feedback. Hey, yeah. here's this piece of content we shared. What else would you like to hear? I use LinkedIn sure. Live. And mm-hmm. so at the end of every LinkedIn Live, I'll post something that says, what other topics would you like to hear about? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, because the idea is I'm just trying to serve that audience. Yeah. And, you know, what are the questions do you have? You know, hey, play stump the guesser. Like, tell me, you know, ask a question that you don't think we can answer that. Oh, mm-hmm. like, here's a really hard one. Because if you're the person they're coming to for a lot of answers, then you're probably also the person going to come. Now, if you basically solicit questions for things that have nothing to do with your business, that's going to be harder, but it can be related to it. Like, I think, I think Marcus talks about, I think it's Columbia Sports or one of those Columbia Outerwear, I think is a whole app they, they produced on knots. I'm like, how to tie knots. Hmm. People say, well, they don't sell rope. It's like, you're missing the point. Their audience is people who are on boats and that camping and this and that who would like an app on how do I tie this type of knot or that type of knot. So they're serving their audience. So it's relevant. But if they were, you know, if, if they were posting something about, you know, doing sous vide cooking, their audience wouldn't care because on a boat, they're probably not firing up the sous vide. Of course. Yeah. It's all about understanding the, the customer and being a resource resource to them. Sure. Love it. Well, Ian, this has been a fantastic conversation. It's been an honor having the opportunity to talk to the co-author of one of my absolute favorite business books. Can you tell, can you tell us the best place for listeners to find you online, where you'd send them and where they could pick up a copy of Same Side Selling? Absolutely. So you can pick up Same Side Selling just about anywhere books are sold. Amazon tends to be one of the most popular places now, but you can also get it at the indie uh, bookstores as well. My, you know, so if you, if you go to ianaltman.com, you'll get me or Same Side Selling Academy gets everything on the academy side and people can always reach out with any questions because sometimes people will read the book or hear something and they'll post a question and it's amazing because I'll usually get questions that say, well, I'm sure Ian doesn't actually read these. And then like I get the email and I respond and say, why do you think I don't read these? I'm like, oh, you read them. I'm like, well, <laughs> you send it to me. If you send it to, if you send it to info, maybe I'll read it. Maybe I won't. If you send it to me, I'm probably going to read it. Yeah, that's great. Perfect. Well, Ian, thanks a ton for taking the time out of your week to do this. I really appreciate it. You bet, Joe. Thanks for all the great questions. Awesome. And as for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to The Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. 
If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com slash learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.